The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who's on the ground in Ukraine near Kharkiv. And, as the midterms hove into view in the US, our Washington editor, Rosina Sabor, joins us from the US capital to update us on US support for Ukraine. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 29th of September, day 218. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, and Rosina Sabor, The Telegraph's Washington Editor. Roland, can I start with you? You're out in Ukraine at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about where you've been and what you've seen? So we've been uh, around, mostly up around the, the Russian border, actually, since we got here. Um, so we've done two things. I've been speaking to the general who's in charge of defense of the city of Kharkiv, not the entire region. Um, and he's in charge of security all the way up to the border, which is only about 20 kilometers away. Um, so we, we ran into him the other day. Um, had a good conversation. Uh, we visited a tank unit um, with him, who are, you know, in the woods refitting after the offensive. Um, the interesting thing, the most interesting thing he said to me was, look, the border is not calm. All right? We've got a lot of focus on the big operation down kind of southeast of here, um, down near Azum, and, and now we're talking about the Battle of Liman and, and the push into Luhansk region, the big dramatic thing that happened last uh, earlier this month, actually, is it only earlier this month? It seems so, so long ago. Um, exactly the same time as that was happening, there was another Ukrainian offensive straight north, timed to coincide with that, timed to uh, keep the Russians, um, you know, off balance. Um, brilliantly successful. The Russians retreated. They fled across the border. The whole border is now in, in this part of Ukraine is now in clean, is the word he used. Um, to me. Um, So kind of in Ukrainian hands. In reality, uh, you have Ukrainians kind of, you know, three or four kilometers this side of the border, Russians three or four kilometers that side of the border. Um, And two things stand out. One, he said, look, we've noticed that they are accumulating a great number of men and equipment on the other side of the border. Again, I don't yet know what they're going to do with that. Are they going to come back here? Are they going to send them down to Netskway? I don't yet know. We're keeping an eye on them. The other thing he said was that the border is not calm. I don't get the impression that it's that it, that you know there's a kind of de facto ceasefire. There's back and forth shelling um, all along the line. Um, these kind of tank duels between um, Russian and Ukrainian units sitting in their respective countries. So Ukrainian shells are falling in Belgorod Oblast. Um, now whether that you know provides a spark for a wider war, the war going into Belgorod, I, I kind of doubt it. But it's um, it, it underlines the point that the situation here, although much calmer than it was, is still pretty delicate um, and pretty nervy. Um, the other thing we did was uh, we went up to we went right up close to the border actually the other day, um, a place called Kozachelopan. Um, I'm writing uh, a report about that now. Should be out on Saturday. Um, pretty interesting place. 
um, all the usual signs. I mean, it's almost a cliche now, but all the usual signs of a Russian occupation. Um, the the town looks like a rubbish dump everywhere they've been. Um, they smash stuff up. Um, there's at least two underground basement prisons. Um, plenty of testimony of people being arrested and tortured. All all the usual um, grim, grim stuff. And you can still hear in the distance. Um, you can hear these uh, these sluggish, I would say, uh, duels across the border um, going on. So that's uh, that's pretty much where we are at the moment. Thanks, Roland. And and just quickly, what's the morale like of the people you've been talking to, soldiers, soldiers and civilians? I mean, pretty good, pretty bullish, really. Um, so we were with these uh, these tankers the other day um, who took part in this this push up towards the border a couple of weeks ago and they've been sitting in the woods kind of refitting since then um and they were saying you know we're, we're pretty much ready you know they've been going over their tank and testing the engine and and you know tuning it making sure they've got enough ammunition adjusting their camouflage you know just getting everything ready so when the next order comes they're they're ready to respond and it's this you know it, it's this interesting combination of having absolutely no illusions, no rosy spectacles about war is like, um, you know, quite well aware of how short your life expectancy is, especially in a tank. I mean, the guy who runs this thing, the, the commander, you know, he said to me, I, I don't want to do down the infantry. Um, I, I know perfectly well they have their own troubles, but this is basically the most dangerous job in this war because a tank is its the target everybody's looking for. The moment you're spotted, everything's put on you. Um, you've got maybe maybe we would get off 10 rounds um, before we'd have to reposition in a battle. Um, incredibly dangerous. Everything's being thrown at you. He talks about, you know, having to shelter under the tank under, under you know, intense bombardments. There's always a risk of landmines. Um, and yet, you know, big smiles on their faces, um, always able to crack a joke, a lot of faith in his crew. Um, he was saying, you know, I've, I've got the best crew around. Um, optimism. On, on the whole, you know, it's still there. The Ukrainians have taken a really, really horrible battering and the people who've been in combat, you know, have seen the most awful, horrendous things. Um, but there is, you know, they, they feel the wind at their backs is the way I'd put it. And you mentioned you've been in and around Kharkiv as well. Um, do you get a sense that normal life is starting to return or is it still just, just impossible with the shells falling daily? Yeah, I mean, Kharkiv is, it's not like Kiev. So so Kiev, to give you the comparison, is now almost like it was before the war, um, with the exception of the irritating kind of 11 o'clock curfew. I mean, you can't get a cab after 10 because all the cab drivers have to get home before 11. Um, with the exception of that, Kiev is basically, you know, Kiev as it always was. You know, the shops are open, the cafes are open, the, the kind of self-parodying hipster coffee bars are back. Um, it's 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 absolutely mad i mean compared to the last time i was there um you have to kind of pinch yourself and remind yourself that there's a war on um out here in kharkiv is a bit of a different story it's it's much quieter than normal kharkiv was before the war um there's you know fewer people on the street um it's just less crowded because a lot of people have fled i mean you know i don't know what the proportions are but i'd say this is a city with less than half of its people around um which in a way is kind of pleasant really because you know that there's less pollution and less noise and you can walk through the botanic gardens and it's all all rather nice um lots of shell damage um lots of boarded up windows where windows have been blasted out um 
you know, the the grand old um, regional administration building on the square. If you remember that video from early in the war where the cruise missile hit it, it's still gutted. But there's a crane over it today, and I, you know, I could see workmen on the roof, um, kind of doing stuff. So Kharkiv still feels very much like you know a city in a war zone but it's much quieter you can't hear the relentless pounding on the edge of the city that you used to hear here i mean you used to literally kind of hear the grad rockets coming in um you know a mile two miles away um you know sometimes things would land much closer um that's not happening but you know cruise missile strikes so last was it last night night before last um eight nine o'clock um I was sitting having my dinner and there were kind of two or three big blasts, very big blasts, um, kind of window shaking, big blasts. And then suddenly the lights went out. Um, they came on again quickly because because my hotel's got generators. But um, the, the basically they'd hit they'd hit an electricity substation and they'd hit the railway as well. So more of these strikes on infrastructure, and we've seen this before, and that's kind of picking up deliberately to make life more difficult i think most until kind of yesterday evening uh, the center of the city was still without power um so that kind of thing is is still going on hi roland it says uh, dom here uh, great to hear from you mate i hope you don't mind me jumping in with a with a couple of questions um before i do i just want to say uh so you're with julian aren't you uh, folks don't don't always get to see the um the photographers that accompany our our journalists out on the ground. Julian Simmons is with you now. We've we've got a, a, a small team of photographers, as we have with reporters, and they've been out there every single day as well. Um, sometimes get a picture byline themselves, but but not often. They're they're more off more often the the person behind the lens than than ever ever in front of it. But um, yeah, very important to note that the photographers taking taking the same risks you are, and obviously with arguably with a much a much narrower field of view because they're looking through a lens. But so, so Julian, hello, if you can hear me. And I just want to say that, uh, Julian, you've been nominated uh, along with along with two other Telegraph photographers, uh, the Groover, Paul, Paul Grover and Simon Townsley, nominated for Best Photographer in this year's Media uh, Freedom Awards uh, from the Society of Editors. So if you, if you don't already know, you've been shortlisted, mate, uh, 9th of November. Hopefully, um, hopefully you'll be uh, you'll be buying the beers. But um, uh, really, really well done and love to highlight uh, highlight your work and all the work of, uh, of all the photographers across all the media organisations helping to to cover this war. Um, but Roland, back back to you, if I may. Uh, one of the questions we've been trying to answer in the last few days, or the last few weeks, actually, since the that big push from Ukraine in the in the north of the country, the northeast from Kharkiv, that big push through to um, through to Kramatorsk, um, is how much further can they go? For the first few days, I was saying that it was actually it was up to them. That the the whole momentum and initiative was up to them, and they they could stop where they where the geography lent itself or where they where they were safest stopping uh, without overextending themselves. I just wonder if you had a feel for for how exhausted the Ukrainian army is in that region. So are they consolidating the positions they've gained, or are they in any? In, uh, uh, are you detecting any signs that they've they're actually they're ready to go again. They've reconstituted. They've rested. They've recuperated. They've fixed their their people and their and their equipment and are ready to go again. So do, do you just get a do you have a feel for for how battle ready they are for for another possible push? I mean, I, the first caveat is obviously um, I, I haven't been out way out at the front, you know, with the guys embedded with a unit. Um, so so my it's it's kind of impressions at you know twenty kilometers removed. But I mean, my my impression is that they're they're kind of still making the pace, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're, 
you know, they seem to have built up this um, this bridgehead on the on the other bank of the Oskil. Um, we're seeing all these reports about you know what's happening down in Liman, um, which is in the you know kind of on the border of, of Kharkiv and, and Donetsk regions, and it looks like they're putting the um, uh, the Russians there into a pocket. You know, the tankers I spoke to, you know, they 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 went well. They've had you know a couple of weeks to get ready and get going, and they were saying, I don't know what the next order is, um, but you know, we're good to go. Um, so, I. <laughs> My impression is, my impression is, is that the Russians are having a pretty hard time, and and that the Ukrainians are trying to to, to keep going as, as as far as they can before. And this is important. Um, I'm a bit of a mud connoisseur. Um, before it all runs into the mud, I mean, it has been raining like absolute cats and dogs the past few days. Um, this morning's fine, um, but it, it's proper autumn weather, thick fog. The other day we were up near the border, and it, you know, it was miserable looking guys uh, in their ponchos. Um, just you know soaked to the skin the ground is getting wet um and that does that does genuinely um slow things down um but at the moment um i i have a sense um you know that that the ukrainians are still trying to push forward and make what progress they can before um is it culminate is the term you like to use you soldiers um before they get to that point where exactly exactly yeah, I think I think they're kind of squeezing uh, squeezing out as much as they can before they get to that point. Brilliant, thank you. And just one one final uh, quickie, if I may. So, um, in Kharkiv, where you are, what's the civilian preparation like in case any in case of another another Russian push on the city? Are you seeing hedgehogs in the streets? Are are, are, are there militia manning checkpoints? Is there preparation of of the locals, weapon training, and and so on and so forth? What kind of what are you seeing from the civilian side? No, a lot, a lot, a lot less of that than there was in the beginning. You know, I mean, I spent the first three, four days of the war here um, when it was all kind of, oh my God, they're coming, and it was panic, and they were, you know, they were literally kind of handing out AKs in 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 a kind of in a, in an in an office or something. You know, come and get a gun. Here's you know, here's a couple of clips. Go and kill a Russian. Um, no, um, it, it, it all feels much more normal. Um, I mean, I, I saw a wedding taking place in the Botanic Gardens down by the zoo earlier today. Um, people are people are walking around. I mean, the, the soldiers are doing their soldierly stuff. It's quite normal to see kind of, you know, guys in the shops with their AK slung over their shoulder. Um, but the the sense of impending doom um, and of this city getting ready to fight has, has, has dissipated. There's much more much more kind of confidence and sense of security here, I think, um, which comes with the fact, you know, there's now Kharkiv is basically out of artillery range. Um, it's not out of cruise missile range, as I discovered the other night. But um, uh, the the front lines um, are now quite away from the city. Um, and you can you can kind of feel that in the, in the kind of calmness of the place. Right, I said I had one more, but obviously uh, I was lying. Uh, not culminated yet. Um, just very, uh, and I said very quickly before as well, apologies, I'm saying very quickly again. So we are expecting, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, expecting uh, an announcement in Moscow tomorrow about that Putin's going to say, hey, you won the referendums and uh, the four, four, four oblasts are coming back to Russia or however he's going to word it really doesn't, you know, doesn't matter. Um, what my question to you, Ron, is, is how big a deal is this? i.e. if the four regions, Kurzon, Zaporizhia, Luhansk and Donetsk, Russia say, right, they're ours now, is that a, is, is that a hostage to fortune? Is Putin then 
unable to climb down from that in any possible future negotiations? Has he absolutely set his stall out and he he's done if he has to try and negotiate over this? Or, or does it not actually matter? We know there were sham referendums. We know, I mean, he doesn't even control all of each of those regions. So how much of this is just ridiculous um, and how much of it is actually very, very serious because he's then a hostage to his own fortune? It's a difficult question to answer because I feel like he was already a hostage to fortune. And, and I feel like um, if he lost this war, even without that, he's already done but i mean yeah it is i think there's a degree of symbolism of kind of nailing your colors to the mast don't think i'm backing down here um i am annexing these territories um and he's he's effectively unable to i mean i I believe check this actually do check this um i'm just trying to check it at the moment but um i believe there's an amendment to the russian constitution which says you can't you can't give up russian territory once it's been acquired so he's kind of saying um you know, don't don't think I'm going to trade any of this um, for for peace. Um, fine, um, I didn't think you would anyway. To be honest, um, it's it's a bit weird because it, it, I've got a lot of deja vu. Right? I mean, anyone who remembers, um, you know, 2014 um, was it in March 2014? Um, a huge gathering in in the kremlin all of the great and the good and the and, and the not so good and the, the downright evil and ugly um of the russian establishment gathered in one room um to watch vladimir putin you know sign the 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 annexation order for for crimea and sevastopol um and then and gave this enormous ranting speech about you know historic justice and 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 the west tried to do us down and all, all the stuff you're used to hearing from um and you know that felt at the at the time. I mean, it was it was a historic moment, and it was a genuine moment of triumph for him and 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 for his you know kind of aggressive regime in Russia because he'd. I can't think of a more a shorter and more victorious war than the Russian annexation of Crimea. You know, it took about three weeks. Um, I think they lost one soldier, uh, and 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 you you got back something that you know a lot of Russians are you know rightly or wrongly very emotionally attached to. Um, and you ended up with a with a huge bounce in his popularity. I mean, it's I, to Brits, I'd compare that with the Falklands War, right? Um, I mean, there is almost no Briton who would say that you know Thatcher was wrong to to, to fight that war and to win it, and um, and and you know there was the Falklands factor, saved her political career, all of that. Um, basically, he got that without actually having to fight, um, and he presented the world with a fate accompli. But this time, it's like well. You're trying to present a fait accompli, but you haven't accomplished anything. Um, your short, victorious war is extremely long and extremely unvictorious. Um, what are you trying to achieve? I, I feel like the objective is, I think it's to scare people. We talked about that nuclear pathway that's laid out. Okay, this is now Russian territory. If you attack it, I need to, I, you know, I'm justified in using nuclear weapons to defend the integrity of the Russian Federation. Um, I think the idea is to in you know laying out very crudely scare washington and and ukraine's western allies into pressing ukraine into a ceasefire while talks can take place a ceasefire becomes permanent um de facto kind of line the world kind of breathes a sigh of relief and goes well okay it's you know cyprus the korean peninsula you know people have lived with these things for years fine we'll get on with it um and then he's kind of secured something he can he can quieten down the war he can claim victory at home and then um, you know, he can rearm 
and 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 come back and do it properly in a few years. I think that's probably the play. Um, but you know, and I'm kind of once again, I don't have a crystal ball that that, that puts me inside Vladimir Putin's head. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Roland, and thank thank you, Dom, for those questions. Um, Roland, at the end of that, you mentioned uh, some of the thinking in Washington. Let's go live to Washington, to our Washington editor, Rosina Sabor. Uh, Rosina, where should we start? Uh, there was a big package of, of aid, of US aid, to Ukraine announced recently. Can you talk us through uh, um, some of the um, some of the things in that and, and, um, and take us through the detail? Yes. Hello, David, and hello to Roland and Dom as well. Um, I think that's a great place to start. This is another massive um, package of military aid that Congress has just agreed to send to Ukraine. So in terms of the highlights of that, the package includes 18 more HIMARS, which are these high mobility mobility artillery rocket systems. Um, these have obviously been one of the most wanted weapons of the war so far. Um, they you know, have incredible accuracy. They have a range of up to 50 miles. Um, I'm sure Dom can can give us a lot more information on on the the, the technical um, aspects of these these systems, but what we've seen, um, you know, is that they've had a devastating impact um, on on Russian ammunition stocks, on command posts. Um, they've been incredibly effective. Um, the Ukrainians have described them as a game changer. They're capable of firing every two minutes. Um, the, the mobile systems are also. Um, you know, th- th- all, all of these um, aspects make it much harder for the Russians to counter the Ukrainians. Um, I'll say more about the HIMARS in a minute, but um, we've also seen in the US military package uh, funding for about 300 vehicles to transport heavy equipment. That includes um, 150 armoured high mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicles, more commonly known as Humvees. It also includes a variety of you know, radars, equipment for secure communications and surveillance and other gear for soldiers, you know, things like body armor, bomb disposal kits. The military package will also include funding for equipment to detect explosives and for maintenance and training. Um, we've also seen that as we've had an increased use of Iranian manufactured drones used on Ukrainian military targets in, in the south of the country, the US is responding um, and sending 12 Titan radar systems to counter that new threat. So now back to the HIMARS. They were first deployed in Ukraine at the end of June. Um, We've talked before about how they're credited with taking out a Russian base at Izium in the east of the country, killing 40 soldiers. Um, And as I've said, you know, the Ukrainians have described these as a game changer in in terms of hampering the Russian bombardment of of Ukrainian cities. But here's the rub. It's going to take somewhere between six months to two years to get most of those weapons and equipment to Ukraine. And definitely a few years for the additional HIMARS to arrive. That's because unlike the, the 16 HIMARS, the military the US military rushed to Ukraine from its um, stockpiles at the Pentagon over the summer. These new weapons will be ordered from the manufacturer. And Lockheed Martin, which is the manufacturer, has, taken, has, has said that this will take a few years to deliver. So what we're seeing here is the US shifting its approach as the war enters a new phase. Russia's obviously now planning to rubber stamp the annexation of 
of these four Ukrainian territories on Friday and the approach of winter, as Roland's touched on, is going to see the war slow down. So what the US is doing here is moving from assisting the Ukrainian military with supplies from the Pentagon's own stockpile to ordering these items directly from manufacturers, you know, within the defense industry. So what does this tell us? Well, it suggests that the White House and the Pentagon are transitioning to what they see as a more sustainable model for Ukraine for an open-ended war with Russia. So we've heard rumblings prior to now from within the Pentagon that senior military figures were getting quite concerned that the US was deploying these HIMARS at a rate that could potentially jeopardise America's own military readiness if they weren't being reordered and resupplied at the same rate. Well, thank you so much for that, Rosina. Can I ask, um, you're in Washington, you're, you're talking to Americans in the establishment, experts, think tankers all the time. What Could you give us a sense of how the US thinks the war is faring? How, how, what's their assessment on the Russian and Ukrainian uh, militaries at the moment? Yes, so... Um, Actually, you know, as this aid package was announced, um, defence officials held a background briefing for reporters in Washington yesterday. Now, one of the things that they were asked about is, you know, point blank, why aren't you sending more rocket launchers to Ukraine from your own stockpiles? And they sort of dodged that question, you know, focusing on the idea that, you know, this is all future investment, future delivery to keep Ukraine going longer term. But they did also um, provide a bit of an update on the US assessment on how Russia is faring since um, Vladimir Putin announced the mobilization of up to 300,000 reservists last week. So this is from a senior US military official. He told us that the first small group of Russians from those 300,000 conscripts have now arrived in Ukraine. Now, we didn't get detail on how many new conscripts have been sent to the battlefield or where they are located. But what we did hear is, you know, the the message here was extreme scepticism that the Kremlin could properly mobilise, train and equip anywhere near that number of new troops in any, you know, near term scenario. And so, and and this is a quote from from that senior U.S. military official. He said, "Just the mechanics of outfitting that size of a force is very difficult." So, what we're seeing here is is extreme scepticism that that, um, that you know Putin's latest mobilization will have an impact in the near term. We're also seeing, a, you know, a, a slight link between this annexation and these, you know sham referenda that we saw on Wednesday and this latest tranche of military assistance from the US. Rosina, last time uh, you talked to us, it was, uh, well, what you, what you said was, what the question was, what's American support for Ukraine like? Do, you know, is, it, is it steady? Is it constant? Could it go up? Could it go down in the future? And you basically said that a lot of that will change or could change around the midterms in November uh, as the energy crisis hits, um, as potentially, potentially Biden slides in the polls. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the situation now? What's what's the feeling in the, in the American public and, and in the establishment? Yeah, so up until now, these huge um, military assistance packages have been fairly uncontroversial. Um, in all, the US has sent almost 17 
billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine since the start of the year. A huge amount. Um, and, and the last package, and you know, almost 12 billion, uh, sorry, <laughs> almost, almost uh, 1.2 billion, um, you know, again, uncontroversial. But what we're expecting is, you know, in terms of the midterms in November, Republicans are narrowly favoured to win the House of Representatives. Um, how the how the control of the Senate will will ultimately end up, we we don't know quite yet. It's it's a bit of a toss up at the moment. But what we have seen is, you know, while the the Republican Party is full of defence hawks who argue that, you know, supporting Ukraine is critical to repelling Vladimir Putin to, to, you know, to being, you know, incredibly hawkish on Russia. We have seen a bit of a divide between the establishment wing of the Republican Party and what I would kind of call the, the MAGA wing, which is, you know, Donald Trump's support base. And, and that base has, has been a little skeptical of the the need for these massive emergency bills um the biggest one we've seen was the 40 billion dollar package passed in may and there is a suggestion that if republicans as expected take control of the house of representatives the the window for these massive spending bills is really closing and that there will be a lot more scrutiny there will be more questions about the effectiveness of this spending and the oversight of the spending. So there is a feeling that the, the window for these huge packages of aid is closing. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the US will stop supporting Ukraine. Of course not. But, you know, these huge bills that have had broad support, will that continue? That, that sort of remains an open question. Well, thank you very much for that, Rosina. Uh, Roland and Dom, you've been listening. Do you have any questions for Rosina? I've got one. Um, where are the tanks? Why, why, why won't they give any tanks? <laughs> um, I might defer to Dom on that question, but um, you know what we've seen is they've been they've been the, the US has been. Um, uh, very selective in the type of equipment that it's willing to offer. Um, th- there's definitely more of um, a willingness to to offer, you know, these rocket launchers and defensive systems. It's it's you know everything we've heard from from the briefings from the Pentagon has been, you know, where can we be most effective? What can we do? to allow the Ukrainians to be to be doing as much of this themselves with us just providing the background assistance. Tom, do you want to come in on that? Is, uh, do, do you know another reason? Hi, Raj. Great to, great to hear from you again. Thanks for, thanks for dialing in from, from the States. Um, I, well, the simple answer is no, I don't, I don't know for, for sure. People I spoke to have, have posited a number of ideas, but, but there, is no, there is no real consensus. Other than presentationally, how would it play in Russia, or it'd be very a very easy sell for Putin to show images of Abrams tanks, US US supplied tanks, in direct fire, direct contact with with um, with his forces in in Ukraine. Now, you know, we are dancing on the head of a pin here, but this is exactly what Russia does, and what Putin does in terms of the 
the, his, the way he uses information or misinformation. So, yes, to, to you and I, there's not a lot of difference between a an American high Mars system killing Russian soldiers, um, an American-supplied NASAMS, you know, National Advanced Surface Wave Missile, one of the greatest, current greatest short and medium-range um, ground-to-air missile systems in the world, knocking out, killing Russian planes and pilots. There's, there's no real difference there, but... It's difficult to physically photograph these these things on the battlefield. Whereas tanks, they will they will be some will be destroyed. They will break down. They will be they will be captured by Russia. They will be photographed somehow. And I think it's a lot easier for Putin to then say to his domestic audience, "Look, you know, I, all along I've said this is a war between us and NATO and the, the the US and the West, everyone else. You know, fortress Russia, as we've said many many times on this pod." And it's a lot easier to make that argument or to bolster that argument with yet more evidence from the front line of, of American M1 Abrams tanks uh, uh, in, in contact, in direct contact, firing at, at uh, Russians. So that, that seems to be the, the sort of be- the best of a bunch of, uh, of reasons that, um, that I've been offered on, on why America's not supplied, supply, supplied tanks. Um, I mean, look at who has supplied tanks. So Poland has supplied supplied tanks. Um, Slovenia, I think, uh, Czech Republic, I believe. But they are old or they are sort of Russian slash Soviet Warsaw Pact stock. These are T- T-72s, T-80s that they've supplied. So presentationally, subtly, subtly different. Uh, so I, I just I just offer that. I'm not – it seems mo- the most plausible reason – that I can come up with, but um, but others may well may have a much better much better idea. And please do um, please do let us know if you think that's the case. Uh, Ross, could I ask, please, just before I let David jump in again, um, can I ask the in terms of the support for from America uh, these multi billion pound packages? And you've talked about the difficulties, possible difficulties after the midterms. How much is support for Ukraine becoming personally linked with Biden? And I ask that because of his difficulties yesterday with you know, making that awful gaffe, asking whether the the congresswoman, I believe, who who died a number of weeks ago in a in a car crash, you know, he he was asking was she at the event he was at yesterday, um, and and also as we as the spectre of the twenty twenty four election starts really coming into focus and Donald Trump and so on and so forth, I just wonder how much the the support is personally tied, becoming personally tied to Biden, and whether or not you think that's going to be a difficulty for him and for support for Ukraine? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I think I would maybe say the answer is it's not quite a straightforward answer because look, there's been broad support for the war um, from from Americans. There's been forceful condemnation of Putin's actions on on both sides of the political aisle. And that's broadly reflected the American public's response. Um, It is worth bearing in mind that Joe Biden was elected on a platform which included a pledge to reassert American dominance on the world stage. Um, I think, you know, if we cast back to the early days of the war and, and actually before the White House had an interesting strategy of sharing a huge amount of their intelligence in advance of Russian actions. Um, Now, we know that there's various reasons for why they were doing that, you know, preempting Russian propaganda and and helping bolster Ukraine and its allies. But a byproduct of that decision was that it was an early signpost to the American public of, of the country's involvement in this war, of its interest in this war. And that's been effective in in 
you know, uh, giving a narrative to this war that is very much this is Putin's doing and we are responding. We are, you, you know, this isn't America on the attack. This is America responding to Russian aggression. So if you look at it from that point of view, there's broad support. Now, where Joe Biden will run into difficulty is when, you know, the economic strains, you know, continue to grow. We head into the winter and Americans are seeing their their food prices rise, the cost of petrol rise. Um, Joe Biden has done an incredibly good job of um, lowering the, the cost of petrol for a, a very long run of days but we have seen it creep back up slightly um in the last week or so so in terms of you know do americans support the war yes will they continue to accept these huge military packages when they're struggling to get by um that that remains to be seen i would suggest maybe no and um we've you know seen from this MAGA wing of the Republican Party that there are already questions um, being raised by Republican lawmakers as to the wisdom of of having huge packages um, just rubber stamped by Congress without more scrutiny and oversight. So we've got people like Matt Gates, who's a Republican congressman in Florida, a very close ally to Donald Trump. And he, he tweeted recently, he said, breaking Congress has agreed on a bill to fund the government. Unfortunately, it's the government of Ukraine. So that's the kind of rhetoric we've we've seen from some um, factions of the Republican Party. And I do think we will see more of that as, you know, the economic constraints and the cost of living come to bite for the average American. Thank you. One one more for me, if I may. And, and apologies if this is a bit of a curveball. It's um, it's only very tangentially related to Ukraine. Um, so China, rise of China, as we've spoken about many times on this pod and how they are um, arguably benefiting, uh, still benefiting, I think, from, from this war. The longer it goes on, p- probably not, because they were, by all accounts, promised a very short, sharp war. So it's giving totalitarian regimes a bad name dragging this war out for uh, for as long as it is. But China... Um, the view in the states, to, to my, I've been a, a few times, nothing like immersed in it as you, as you are. The view seems to be a very split, kind of east coast, west coast. West coast tech loves China; it's a great market, great uh, opportunities. We need to get closer. We need to embed technology with China, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. East coast is kind of a, a much, much cooler and see it much more through the security lens. I just wonder if you had a view on on if that was a, a fair characterization of how China is seen in in the states and 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 which side has the ascendancy if either at the moment thanks so the view in in washington is very much that there there needs to be less dependence on china congress um recently passed what's known as the chips bill so um the idea of you know increasing u.s manufacturing of um of of these microchips and and semiconductors and you know, just decreasing U.S. reliance on on China for the production of, of advanced technology. I think that's a view that's shared East Coast to West Coast, to be honest. Um, I don't know that there is uh, a uniform approach to China at the moment, but what we have seen with the war in Ukraine 
you, you know, some Republicans have argued, you know, Russia's a bit of a distraction. We should be actually focusing on China. And the response, um, by and large, from Congress has been, you know, Russia is is kind of, you know, China's number two, you know, junior partner in terms of, um, you know, in terms of, or, or number two in terms of, you know, U.S. foreign adversaries. So defeating Russia and Ukraine will will have an impact on China too. And, you know, obviously China is watching how the U.S. supports Ukraine and that has implications for how it approaches Taiwan. And, and I think I talked um, last time that was on this, on the podcast about, um, you know, Joe Biden's philosophy and all of this, which is democracies are facing an existential crisis at the moment and it is incumbent upon the US to to reassert itself on the world stage to you know stand up and defend democratic countries across the globe so that's a, that's a bit of a long-winded answer no that's great thanks thanks Rosina um just one is there anything you you haven't spoken about that you think would be important for our listeners to hear about the situation and views in the US I think we've I mean we've we've covered quite a lot I think it's it's um very interesting that you know the US continues to provide very regular updates and assessments in these background briefings on on how it sees the situation as I've kind of touched on it it is interesting that the us is now shifting away from you know let's get these systems let's get these high mars let's get all of this equipment to ukraine immediately to actually let's start ordering them from lockheed martin instead you know trying to quell um concern from within the pentagon that the us might be burning through its own stocks too quickly and also the idea that, you know, maybe if we, we give too many of these systems to, to, to Ukraine too quickly, that they will burn through, um, you know, ammunition and all the rest of it. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, shift from the US. And um, I think we just need to, to watch what comes next after November. Well, thank you very much, Rosina, uh, Roland and Dom. Um, we've obviously done this podcast slightly differently since we've been blessed with Roland calling in from uh, northeastern Ukraine and uh, Rosina calling in from Washington. There are a few developments on the battlefield we do need to talk about. Dom Nichols, can you take us through them? Yes, just uh, quickly. So around the, in the northeast area, around the town of Liman, which we've spoken about for the last few days, so this is the, the sort of last big position Russia are holding before they would need to tumble back or, or, or move back to, to make a very a bold move back towards the Lysychansk Severodonetsk area. Now, Liman has been, it's not entirely circled or that's not what we've been, no reliable sources saying that yet, but there are Ukrainian forces to the to the north, the east, the south and and the kind of south Southwest, so there's just this thin corridor out to the northeast. Uh, Russian military bloggers, who we've we've said in the past, actually, because of their outrage at how this war is being prosecuted from their point of view, and um, that it's going so poorly, they are they are actually in many ways a credible source of information. They are they are saying a lot of stuff that we don't get through other official channels, and um, a lot of it turns out to be quite accurate. They are increasingly concerned. Uh, about Liman says Ukraine is now, as I said, from that that sort of that pocket from southwest south west north and to the northeast they're only leaving leaving one road out um for for resupply or withdrawal um and there are there have been other reports saying that ukraine's on the outskirts of the town of torsk which is about 5k's to the east 
that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, they've closed that pocket. But um, if they are if they're in the area, then the the option for Russia to withdraw its forces, uh, looking the time the time frame is just collapsing there. So they they don't seem able to hold onto the town. Um, but their options for getting out in good order are are getting increasingly slim. So uh, we've been watching that for the last few days. As I say, if they pull out of there, the way that the, the ground lends itself. They would then need to make a, a fairly bold move, about 30 k's to the to the east around Kremina, uh, Slovyansk, Krematorsk, that kind of area, back to the river, um, and so, so that would be a, a major reversal. Uh, well, not sorry, not not major in terms of the the advance that Ukraine made three weeks ago, but but it would it would be it would be significant, mostly because that would then start eating into the Luhansk Oblast. So, so Russia being able to claim, Putin claiming that, that he's, he's, he controls the whole of the, uh, the region, the Oblast, is not correct now anyway, but it's, it would be even less so. And, and less, he'll be less able to maintain that fiction if there was a, uh, if there was a, a bold move back. Um, separately, uh, today's UK defence intelligence uh, message made the point that there are now more Russians have fled the country since... Putin's mobilisation announcement last week um, then invaded on February the 24th or in the current, current uh, phase of the of the Russian assault on Ukraine, which started in 2014, of course. So we estimated about 180, 190,000 invaded uh, in, in 24, sorry, on February the 24th. UK defence intelligence saying that a comparable number have now exited the country, which is which is obviously a huge, hugely significant. Um, and finally, in, in relation to the the Nord Stream 1 and 2, the pipeline um, attacks. I don't think we have to put attacks in in, uh, in Joe's famous uh, um, bunny ear commas anymore. I think it's it's now widely accepted. It was it was sabotage. Even Russia are now saying it's a terrorist act. And in one of those moments that is, even a stopped clock will tell the correct time twice a day. Dmitry Peskov, the, the uh, Kremlin spokesman, said, quote, it's very difficult to imagine that such a terrorist act could happen without the involvement of a state. Yes, Dimitri, I completely agree. Um, he's called for an urgent investigation. Again, completely agree there. I mean, you know, you, you pay your money, you take your choice. M- many, m- many commentators, most sensible commentators, I would suggest, are saying that this, it looks like this was a, a, a Russian act to, um, to destroy these pipes. Uh, for for what reason we can we can speculate. We we had a quick chat yesterday. We can do this again at length, as I'm sure it's going to come back. Um, was it to to try and get some sort of sanctions relief in order to work on those pipelines again? Yeah, etc. We're not we're not quite sure, but I think most people would agree that this was this was not carried out by by Russia. Um, and uh, th- yes, a fourth. If I didn't mention before, Swedish Coast Guard said today that actually they're now assessing that there were four blasts, not three, on those uh, on those two pipelines. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Um, just before we go to our final thoughts for today, uh, Dom, we've got a question for, for you from Ivan in Canberra, Australia. Um, and I think it, it, it ties together quite a lot of... We've spoken a lot with Rosina today about the support that uh, the US is giving Ukraine, the weapons and the ammunition, etc., being sent. Um, so his question sort of riffs quite close to that. And I think it's, it's a question that we've, we've heard posed by quite a few people in different ways. So here it is. This is Ivan's question. And thank you very much, Ivan, for sending this in. He says, quote, given that NATO and countries outside of NATO, like Australia and Canada, are supplying so many arms to Ukraine, and given that Moscow now considers that they are fighting NATO and not Ukrainian Nazis, why not now seriously consider deploying NATO troops into Ukraine as the next step? Start with advisors and then gradually start deploying more and more troops. I know it's further escalation, but that's war. We should stop fighting this war with one hand tied behind our backs, especially given the partial mobilization in Russia. What would you say uh, to even Dom? Yeah, OK, well, um, 
Evan, thank you very much for the question. I mean, I think you, the, the short answer is you hit the nail on the head there when you say it's an escalation. So anything that draws other actors in, especially NATO, into direct contact with Russia, so war, shooting at each other, is, a, is just a, a colossal step. I mean, that is, there's no coming back from that. So I think, I think there would be extreme reluctance still, even with all the provocation, extreme reluctance for anyone to commit to that. I mean, the amount of weapons that are now being supplied, which when we started talking about weapon supplies some months ago, the numbers now would have been, people would have just balked at months ago, whereas now it is uh, always welcome. I mean, su- surprising, but when when US says it's going to supply another 18 HIMARS systems, but it, it's within a framework. So I think the, the, the level of support now is is as unthinkable a few months ago but i really do think that they actually committing troops and bringing nato countries into direct combat against russia is just is just too too far at the moment and and where that might where that might lead now you raise a very interesting point you say why fight with one hand behind your back um if this is what we're in now it's a, it's a war if, if we all accept that 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 we want to go to go to the end and see the end of Putin, or or have Russian forces ejected from Ukraine, which I think basically amounts to the same thing. Then don't don't do it with one hand tied behind your back, as you say. Patrick Porter, uh, professor of intelligence, um, sorry, international security at University of Birmingham, really really good good guy. Uh, should follow him on Twitter. Pat Porter, I think seventy six is his is his Twitter handle, but you'll you'll find him. He makes this point repeatedly. He says, look, you know, you've got to decide. You know, what what do you want? If you want to see the end of this war, if you want Putin to lose, if you want Russia to be ejected from the country, then what are you prepared to to, to do for it? Are you going to put um, men and women from other countries in harm's way? Are you going to go the distance by putting you know putting your taxes up to to supply money to supply arms to Ukraine? What are you going to do? You can't you can't just sit there and wring your hands and say, "Oh, really bad. I really want Putin to lose and do nothing about it." You know, you either you're either in it or or you're not. Now, he's not advocating. I, I shouldn't speak for him. I'm, I'm not speaking for him at all. And, and <laughs> if you're listening, please please do. Uh, we should get you on sometime. But you know, he's he's not saying we should go in or or we should not. He's just making the point that you you can't just stumble from one week to the next with these sort of nefarious um, political ideas and and a bit of a strategy here and a, and a few thoughts there. You know, you need to decide what your aim is and then go for it and resource it and commit wholeheartedly. Be that to to um, either seeing the end of Russian forces in in Ukraine or, as some have suggested, uh, we should have nothing to do with it whatsoever. And um, uh, it's it's Ukraine's not a member of NATO. They should they should fight on their own i don't subscribe to that idea but you know th- th- these ideas are are out there but pat board is very clear in saying you need to decide what what you're on what you're in this for and how far you are prepared to go so van i haven't really i haven't really answered your question there except to say that i i, I think it would just be such a, an escalatory step to put um to put nato troops in direct combat with russia i can't see that happening however what do we do in the meantime for all the issues we spoke earlier with ros about about um us issues after the potentially after the the midterms and supplying weapons and and support around the world um as the politics change and arguably that's what putin's aiming for to 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 stay in the game long enough for the western politics to change um so i think maybe i've half answered your question and and half raised raised another one but uh i mean it's, it's by no means a simple answer there and and thank you very much for raising a a, a really important 
way of thinking about this war. But for, for more thoughts on that, go and have a look at Patrick Porter. Thanks very much, Dom. Uh, just before we come to our final thoughts, one quick thing from uh, me. We've had uh, Hamish de Breton Gordon, who's um, a regular contributor to this podcast, has just made the point on Twitter um, on the tank issue we were talking about earlier, why, why the Americans are not sending American tanks. He says, um, one point to bear in mind is that Ukrainian tanks, t- uh, Ukrainian tank- tankies know how to work Russian tanks, not necessarily US ones. And you know, training for that can be up to around six months. So thank you, Hamish, for sending that in. That's actually quite a useful point, uh, one that we didn't make. So thanks, Hamish, for that. Um, Roland, Rosina and Dom, can I come to all of you just for your, your final thoughts? What, what are you going to be thinking about in the next few days? Well, if I could go first, please, to leave the floor for the, for the other two. Um, Moscow tomorrow, 3pm 3, 3 Moscow time, midday, midday London time. What's that? 7am breakfast time, East Coast US. Um, Putin, we, we expect, going to make his great, his great annexation speech. Um, that in itself, we're already aware of. But let's look for the response. Let's let's look for what what is what is said about it um, outside of Russia. Let's have a look for those Russian military bloggers because they they may well say fantastic, brilliant, off off we go. This is what we want all along. Or they might say, well, you're making a you're making a sham of doing it. You know, you're not you're you're not supporting the war, supplying the war well enough to uh, to to achieve that. So let's keep an eye on the reaction to t- tomorrow rather than the the announcement itself. Um, yeah, I I would f- I follow. Um... Dom's comments there with just saying have a look out for how the White House um, responds to this rubber stamping tomorrow of, of Russia's annexation in, in those four areas of Ukraine. We've already seen um, Joe Biden's spokeswoman saying, you know, the US is preparing new sanctions against Russia in response to those sham referenda. Um, and that the US and its allies will impose a severe economic cost on Russia when they move forward with that annexation. So just that final thing to watch from the US. Thanks, Rosina. Thanks, Dom. Uh, Roland, you're out in Ukraine. Would you like the final words? Um, yeah, no, I think I think Ros and Dom both absolutely right. I think um, three o'clock in Moscow um, is going to be, it's, it's kind of a key moment because I think this is an attempt by Putin. He can't win militarily. His, his army's basically been defeated in the field. Um, this is an attempt to return, you know, the question to the political and geopolitical level. Um, and backing all of that um, is, of course, this this fairly macabre, barely veiled nuclear threat. Um, uh, you know, are we scared about it? I don't know. I think there are some nerves. You know, I've had some conversations with people saying, eh, do you want to do you want to keep out of the big cities for the next few days? Um, you know, will he go through with it? We don't know. So I think... Um, that that is something to watch, and the fallout from that fallout, what a pun, um, <laughs> unintentional, is um, is is something to watch. On a, a couple of other things, on on the more minuscule micro scale, I mean, what's happening in Liman? Um, I, I, it's it's got a lot of significance. If they lose, if the Russians lose Liman, it is another setback for them. It's another embarrassment um, following the disaster in Kharkiv Oblast. But look, if it, it's kind of even worse if the Ukrainians manage to close a pocket around it. If if you end up with, you know, I don't know how many Russian troops are there. So there's a thousand Russian troops. I don't know. Um, you end up with a Russian force that is properly surrounded and cut off. And this reverses a narrative that the the Russians had for years, and they did it a lot in 2014. They call it a cauldron, and they used to put cauldrons around Ukrainian forces. And you had it at Ilovysk, you had it on the border, you had it at Dabatsev. It was a, it was a Russian thing, and this is what we're going to do to the Ukrainians. And and it's really, really demoralizing. It broke Ukrainian morale back then. It was something the Russians loved to crow about, and it kind of convinced a lot of people in the West that the Russians can never be beaten. Um, so if 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 we see that. 
I mean, A, it's something, you know, people in the West will be saying, oh, the Ukrainians really can put encirclements around Russians. Um, and it's just going to be such a, I mean, after the disaster in Kharkiv region, um, I think, I think you know, th the military bloggers on Telegram are just going to absolutely lose it. Um, I, I think Putin is already in massive, massive political trouble at home because of this war. Um, and, and it's, he's just going to be in worse trouble. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.